All right, all right, people out there in podcast land, YouTube land, Spotify land, wherever you at. It's about yeah. that time again. Thank you for tuning in. We up. Uh, Took a break for a little while, you know, had to go handle some business in the Dunlap world, but we <laughs> is back like we promised it. And allow hey, me y'all. to reintroduce myself. I am your co-host, Deontay. And I'm Shakima. And we are the Dunlaps. The Dunlap. Yes, we are. Thank you for getting in it again with us. We're glad you're here. We hope <laughs> you all have a good time. We're here to enlighten some minds and, mm-hmm. you know, entertain and educate and all that good stuff. <laughs> Hope y'all couldn't wait. We here. I know we couldn't wait to get back to y'all. We had so much stuff, y'all. Oh, last week we took a break for some travel and for like a leadership boot camp. We were doing a um a five-day leadership boot camp. And so we are excited to drop some of the nuggets we've learned and you know how we do it. Yeah, we took some good notes and mm-hmm. we hope they help you as much as they've helped us, you know, help elevate that mindscape. You know what I'm talking about? No, I'm talking about. All right, my love. We're gonna kick it off how we do it. We're gonna start with the social justice initiative. You know, this day in history, stand history, uh, and social injustice. All right, so injustice. Sometimes I do the day before, and then today. Today I'm gonna do today and tomorrow. Okay. Okay. So today in history, um, May 16, 1956, the Florida communities ordered racial segregation at beaches and this is particularly at Delray Beach um, they burned a cross at the beach and so shout out to uh, the Equal Justice Initiative for the history of racial injustice calendar this is where we get all of our today in history for um, the racial injustice segment y'all check it out please we always drop it inside the chat if you're watching us live on Facebook but if you are um, listening to our podcast the site is calendar.eji org and that is the equal justice initiative so on may 16 1956 white residents of delray beach florida burned across to terrorize black residents and prevent them from using the city's public beach that had been open to only white visitors for decades gonna try to segregate the ocean you you just want the ocean to like not be black people The day before this racial violence, the U.S. District Judge Emmett C. Choate had dismissed a federal civil rights lawsuit in which nine Black Delray residents had sued for access to Delray's municipal. Though Black citizens had been barred by terrorism and de facto segregation for decades, the Delray Beach City Commission tried to avoid federal intervention by informing the court that the city had no written policy denying Black residents access to the beach. In dismissing the lawsuit on this basis, Judge Cho expressly recognized that the city was legally authorized to continue practicing segregation and that the commission segregate portions of the beach by race. Concerned that the commission statement denying a formal segregation policy threatened to weaken years of rigid enforced racist exclusion, white citizens decided to take violent action to let black residents know they were still unwelcome. After a white residence burned across to send that message, local law enforcement declined to investigate or to hold white citizens accountable. On May 20th, a group of black residents attempted to gain access to the beach, only to be forced out by an angry gathering of 70 white people demanding they leave. Over the next several days, 
white citizens began stockpiling weapons from stores in Fort Lauderdale and West Palm Beach, anticipating the return of black beachgoers and preparing to respond with lethal violence. On May 23rd, the city commission enacted a formal segregation that codified years of de facto segregation and barred black residents from using the Delray Municipal Beach or pool. Within three weeks of the city's enactment, Three neighboring beachfront towns, Riviera Beach, Lake Worth, and Daytona Beach, had adopted identical segregation ordinances. Over the next month, Delray Beach City of Commission attempted to get Black leaders in the Delray Civic League to cooperate in keeping their fellow Black residents off the municipal beach. The city initially proposed the construction of a separate and unequal beach for Black residents in a 100-foot strip of rocky land. Black leaders rejected his proposal, demanding access to city facilities on equal terms with white citizens. The Civic League requested a 500-foot section of the beach and the immediate construction of a pool for Black residents. In July, the city finally agreed to construct a swimming pool for Black residents, but conditioned the pool's construction on continued exclusion of Black residents from the municipal beach. The city repealed the segregation ordinance, returning to its decades-long policy of de facto segregation, and subsequently abandoned all plans to construct a, black, a beach for Black residents. So that's today uh, in history, May 16, 1956. And that one hits home for me because my family is in Daytona. Yep. So, Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's always a trip, right? You know, you have the people who deny that this stuff ever happened. Mm-hmm. And it's like, then they deny that racism is like this myth. And it's like, okay, if, if that's the case, then what's this? Why is this 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 whole idea that you got one group of people that just want to be completely separated? And they they not only do they want to be separated, but they want to control where you go. You know what I'm saying? It's like it, it's 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 one of those things that boggles my mind sometimes. It's like, okay, you you know. You not only you you want to take all with you want to take all the good stuff for you, and you know and just kind of leave the you know it just you know and, and give somebody what you want them to have while you you know it's it's a trip. But the ocean though. Yeah, I know, right? It's to like me, it's like the audacity of like trying to segregate the whole like the ocean. Do you do you own that ocean? Well, let them you tell it. They probably do. I'm like you. It's 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 crazy when you think about it, you know. Um, well, I guess you can't say it's crazy, but it's like it's wild. Like, yeah, it definitely is, and I, you know, it makes me think about you know this this running stereotype that black people can't swim, right? But then you think about all of the 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 healthy mediums of swimming were taken from us, right? So like. There were so many instances of black people drowning, had us swimming in places that were murderous. You know what I mean? Like they they put us in places to swim. Well, like you, you, you die. Right. And so of course black people didn't want to swim after that. Right. Like, and so it's the whole and and, and it, you know, it reminds me of um, it reminds me because Mother's Day just passed this weekend. And on Mother's Day and the days leading up to it. There were there was lots of rhetoric um, about well you know seems like black women should be worried about absentee fathers more than this or more than that seems like the you know missing black dads and I'm like it's amazing how people put systems in place to create issues ignore all of the data surrounding those issues right 
and then point back to the people who are harmed by those issues and say it's your fault right right like why are y'all so excited about missing black fathers first of all that's a myth we know that but the second thing is like that was kind of constructed that's socially constructed right and so um victim blaming i think that's what this generation calls it victim blaming right but yeah so that was um that was today in history uh, you know i, I re- you know one more thing i i yeah, I had honestly, you know, heard of, you know, tons of stories about segregated pools and, you know, mm-hmm. you couldn't swim in this pool. You couldn't swim in that community's pool. But it's a whole land, a whole different landscape when you're saying that you can't even walk on the sand. You can't go to beach. the beach where all the water in the world at some point hit, mm-hmm. you know, is it's like it's amazing. It's but. But you know, it's sobering. You know, I yeah. think it's, it, it, we always need reminders exactly what we're up against. And I think sometimes we can get, you know, inside of our homes or inside of our circles, you know, with, you know, Black people who've had a modicum of success. And we think, oh, you know, some of that stuff doesn't exist, but it does. It still does. And, and, and we, we still are walking and talking in the vestiges of that stuff. And so the crazy part is that. You know, people people will say, well, we don't remember that. But you do, though, because I feel like some of these conversations, like we just saw that lady that um, at Bellevue Hospital in New York. I don't know if you saw that where the, the young black man, he rented a bicycle. You know how they have those uh, mm-hmm. yeah. like the zip cars and the scooters and all that stuff. So anyway, so the, the young guy, he, he he rented a bicycle and one of the staff members, one of the nurses at the hospital tried to take the bike from him and was screaming at him saying that he was stealing it. And then when he was like, no, I rented this. And then she just, the tears, like it's in the playbook, the tears. And then when she realized that the tears wasn't going to work, then all of a sudden she wants to call the police. It's, it was just crazy. Like the, the weaponization and the, the tears like on cue, like on command, like, I'm not getting what I want. So I know that the way that I can get anybody to literally kill you, Black man, is for me to say that you made me cry. And I, that has to be taught, right? So at what age, and if, if y'all are out there and y'all are listening, viewers that I can trust, tell me the truth. Give me the truth. I ain't going to put all your business on the street because I think we already know it. I just want somebody to actually tell me, like, Shakima, this is what we do. Just like Black parents have that talk with their children about police encounters, about having to be twice as good in spaces, about how to respond when you're the token Black person and you're the only one in the room. What y'all tell y'all kids about crying? Your daughters. What do you tell your daughters about crying? I want to know that. Because they have to, that has to be like the talk. Yeah. Yes. I... I... I don't know. It's I, I think it's uh I don't know. I'm not gonna speculate. Part of me believes it's a it's a learned behavior. You watch, you learn from watching somebody else do it and you see how other people get certain things done, how you know, how some you know, how you know how other people get their way. Maybe, Maybe if I, I cry know. or if I, you- I, I I feel like it's more nefarious than that. And as a black woman, I I fear for my sons all the time. 
because of stuff like that you know and i and i feel like it has to be explicitly taught that's bigger like if you have never seen like it is on cue anytime those situations are happening it is on cue and i can't imagine that every single white woman has seen that happen enough so they just know how there has to be like a talk okay when you get in these types of situations this is what you do just like black people have those talks with their children right keep your hands on the steering wheel stay calm right and those explicit like direct instruction conversations that we're having with our children to to preserve their lives and white supremacy has to be getting talked about at the table like on Thanksgiving, do y'all say pass the peas and let me tell you, show you how to be a racist? I just want to know. Because I just feel like the um, there has to be like a playbook or a manual or something to live by. Racist handbook or something? I don't know. And so people who don't grow up like that have a better chance of not being those people. Like there has to be a difference, right? Between the people who are like that and the people who are not. And I wonder if it's the way they're raised. Like the people who grow up and they're not racist, they're anti-racist, just, you know, decent human beings and the people who are, there has to be some kind of conditioning. Um, I can't argue with that, you know, environmental. Yeah, like there has to be like, you know, when y'all sit at the table, you tell people like, you know, we got this land by doing X, Y, Z. So to keep it in the family, you got to pretend like you don't know that. <laughs> you got, we got our money by doing this. And to keep it, you got to pretend like you weren't a part of that. You know, like keep saying it wasn't you. That way the money never leaves. I don't know. Like, I just, I, I just, I just want to be the spook who sat by the door for a minute and see like what kind of conversations they have. So I want to move on and do today, uh, tomorrow. May 17th. So May 17th in 1954, the Supreme Court decision sparks massive white resistance to school integration. On May 17th, 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled that segregation in public education was unconstitutional, uh, overturning the separate but equal doctrine in place since 1896 and sparking massive resistance among white Americans committed to racial inequality. The Supreme Court's landmark decision, Brown v. Board versus Education, Board of Education, grew out of several cases challenging racial segregation in school districts across America. Filed as part of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund strategy to bar the practice nationwide. In the named case, a black man named Oliver Brown sued the Topeka, Kansas Board of Education for refusing to allow his daughter Linda to attend the elementary school nearest her house solely due to her race. When the case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, NAACP lawyer Thurgood Marshall argued that segregated schools were harmful and saddled Black children with feelings of inferiority. Writing the majority opinion, Chief Justice Earl Warren endorsed this argument and declared that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. The decision outraged white segregationists as much as it energized civil rights activists. Throughout the South, where state constitutions and state law mandated segregated schools, white people decried the decision as tyrannical and uh, is a tyrannical exercise of federal power. Many Southern white leaders and their constituents implemented a strategy of massive resistance to delay desegregation. 
These groups made up of elected officials, business leaders, community residents, and parents deployed a range of tactics and weapons against a growing movement for civil rights, including bombing and murdering civil rights activists, criminalizing peaceful protests, and wielding economic intimidation and threats to chill Black participation in civil rights activities. These tactics worked. And by 1960, only 98 of Arkansas's 104,000 Black students attended desegregated schools, as did 34 of 302,000 in North Carolina and 169 of 146,000 in Tennessee and 103 of 203,000 in Virginia. In the five deep South states, every single one of 1.4 million Black school children attended segregated schools until the fall of 1960. By the start of the 64-65 school year, less than 3% of, of the South African children attended schools with white students, and in Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and South Carolina, that number remained substantially below 1%. The Brown decision signaled the start of a massive cultural shift in racial dynamics in the U.S. and also launched an organized mass movement of opposition. Most white Americans, especially in the South, supported segregation. Uh, yeah. So that was near and dear to me because as an educator, I've done extensive study on the Brown v. Board cases. Um, and I've been to Farmville, Virginia to see Moton High School, where my shero, Barbara Johns, led students in a walkout. I've been to New Kent County, where the Brown v. Board 2 case was, which is really where the movement happened. So Brown v. Board 1 was where they made the decision, but they had the caveat in there with all deliberate speed. It wasn't until Brown v. Board 2 from New Kent County that they actually started the movement and opened Virginia public schools after five years of being closed so they wouldn't have to integrate. And then, you know, I'm doing my doctoral dissertation on increasing the numbers of Black teachers in the profession. And part of that literature review was to look at the damage done to the Black teaching pool after Brown v. Board, right? right? So there's a new book um, called Jim Crow's Pink Slip, and it talks about over 100,000 Black teachers losing their jobs, Black teachers and administrators losing their jobs in the you know subsequent days of um, the Brown decision. And we've never recovered from that. Wow. Because even though students were integrated, white parents didn't want their, their children taught by Black teachers. And so teachers, Black teachers with PhDs lost their jobs to white teachers who had GEDs. Black school leaders were not allowed to supervise white teachers and lead schools. And so we still see that today. There's a remnant of that today. COVID has hit the Black teaching pool harder than our white counterparts. Are you teaching me today? You know, I'm not as well read into the, um, I'm familiar with, you know, um, the Brown case, but I don't know as, I don't know it is, um, as in, in depth as you do, but that is, well, I mean, but as I say, if you don't, if you don't know your history, you're doing to repeat it. You know, and if you don't, you know, if you want to deny that these things that have actually happened and they don't have impact on your current reality, you know, is is doomed to happen again. You know, yes. um, and, and so that's why it's it's important that you know this information is kept relevant. Mm -hmm. 
because yeah. because if if it's if it's if it's not kept relevant and it's swept under the rug, history will repeat itself. Yeah. And when you control the information and you have a certain agenda or result that's being sought, it can get worse. Yeah. And I think we see the the so the impact of that decision is so overwhelmingly widespread. Like we see it in um, graduation results. We see it in students, you know, college enrollment and successful college matriculation. There's research that shows that when black and brown children have at least one teacher who looks like them in high school, it impacts their ability to attend and graduate from college. So just having that one teacher who looks like you, who can talk to you and speak to you and encourage you and let you know that like it's achievable. Here's what I did. Here's how you get through. That has a tremendous impact on students. And so we see that, you know, the Brown case impacted Texas in a different way than it impacted Atlanta, you know, because Atlanta had predominantly African-American population, but Texas had a predominantly Latinx population. And these students in Austin um, experienced the same things. Segregated classrooms, you know, being punished and not being allowed to speak Spanish um, in the classrooms or, you know, parents telling the, the school district, telling their parents that they had to have, they got 30 days to, to make sure their child could speak English or they kicking them out of school. Like just all kinds of, all kinds of stuff. Um, there's just so much work that remains to be done. And I think people have stopped working because they've assumed that, you know, well, the kids can go to school wherever they want to go to school. But from the beginning, education in this country has been inherently unequal. And Black taxpayers have always, always contributed far more to white children's education than white people have contributed to theirs, even in tax dollars, right? Black people pay the same amount of taxes, but the money goes to other schools. And we're talking about a proportionate amount, right? So maybe the whites are wealthier and they, you know, per capita are paying more because they have more wealth, right? The wealth is concentrated higher in those areas. But if you look at the percentage as a proportion to what Black people are paying, right, based on what they bring in, Black people are overwhelmingly footing the bill for public education. And now we're in a state like Texas where they're talking about vouchers, right? Where you, you know, take your, your money and you go to whatever private, segregation academy you want to go to um and and it we're just we're back at it all over again and i think that you know i i would i have spent so many years of my life trying to educate black and brown families about ways to divest um, from spaces where their children are harmed ways to divest from spaces where they're not appreciated and accepted because the psychological harm that is done to students in spaces like that is sometimes irreparable and we have this love-hate relationship with public schools because we think, oh, well, you know, it's free. I can't afford anything else. But at the same time, it's like, you know, they're not, they're not caring for your child's soul. And that's why the academics are behind, because they don't care about your child. That sense of belonging inside the schools, that sense of, of, of being loved and nurtured that, that Black and Brown educators bring to Black and Brown children. It's missing. And of course, that's going to influence the academics, right? So there's just so much data and it's all over the board. 
with education. Um, and so I wanted to share that today. And I just encourage you all who are listening, do your research. Do your research, right? Uh, the numbers of black and brown teachers compared to our population numbers are not consistent. They're not consistent. So though white teachers make up, you know, white population is 70 Four percent of the population, they make white women make up like 80 something percent of the teaching workforce. So that's the automatic tears in their teaching your child. Do your homework. All right, I'm on my soapbox. All right. <laughs> Well, um, I had uh, two um, for this day in history, but I, I'll save us some time. I'll just go with one. Um, so May 16th, 60, the first laser was, was created. Okay. Physicist, physicist Theodore Maiman created the first laser light using a synthetic ruby crystal device. He was not the first to develop the theories behind lasers, nor first to apply for patents, but he was, but he was first, but he was the first to create an operating laser device. Wow. The light produced by the, the, the light produ produced by this device was not a true beam. We it was not a true beam as we think of lasers of most lasers today, but rather repulse. Other researchers have created the first laser beam soon after. So wow. that's to this day in technology history. Today, the first today, 1960, first laser, the actual first actual laser was created, functional laser. Um, this information comes, the source of this information comes from this day in techhistory.com. We are not supported, no, we're not sponsored in any way by this site, but um, we do um we do um, appreciate the information that they share and that we hope to disseminate and, and, and share with the world. So technology is, technology is not going anywhere. So we need, mm -hmm. to know our, just, we need to know our history of technology, where we came from in reference to where we're at and where we're going. Yeah. And it's, you know, honestly, uh, it's taking over. So oh, not yeah. going anywhere is an understatement. It's taking over. It is, it is, a, it is the cornerstone of our life. Mm -hmm. In terms of high technology, I think technology in and of itself is a part of, you know, um, the human experience, but high technology as we know it in the in information technology and things of that nature. Um, yeah, that's not that's only going to get that's that's only going to continue to grow exponentially mm -hmm. as we as we continue to move forward. AI is here, y'all. That's it. I hope y'all checked it out. Wow. Well, all right. That is it for today in history, uh, technology history. Um, all right, my love, what, what, what are we talking about today? What, what's, what's on the menu for conversation? So today we're talking about holding patterns. And let me be honest with y'all. Uh, I had just woke up. <laughs> my spouse came home and woke me up. And I was like, Lord, I almost overslept for the show, but my soul was tired. Everybody who's a teacher right now understands what I mean. Uh, my soul is tired. So, you know, I just thought about um, the concept of holding patterns and how 
sometimes we have a variety of options, but we don't know which ones to take. Sometimes we're paralyzed by fear and shame from, you know, past opportunities we squandered or sometimes we, you know, we had, we had a fork in the road and we took the left one instead of the right one and it turned out the left one was, you know, the worst one possible. And so tonight we want to just, you know, talk about embarking on the journey um, through our past armed with the wisdom of our mistakes. So like, how do we use the wisdom that we gained? Hopefully we got some, right? Because hopefully you reflected and figured out what you did wrong. Um, or at least not what you did wrong, but like ways you're supposed to grow from that pain, right? right. So we're, mm-hmm, we're talking about the transformative power of embracing those lessons that you learned from your missteps and how they can shape your transition into a new season of life. Um, and so, you know, even the pain is a gift. It's a gift, you know, even if you choose to see it that way, even that pain is a gift and everybody's going to stumble and fall. Everybody's going to encounter hurdles that, you know, feel insurmountable. But in that, in those mistakes, right, if you're willing to dig, if you're willing to dig and push past the pain um, and sometimes even embracing the pain, I found that there's, there's, there's honor in that too. Um, you got a lot of stuff down on the inside of you. That, that God is waiting to use. So that's the, what today is about. And the truth is, is in the moment, it don't feel like a gift. Mm-mm. That's just the truth. And, but that's also what wisdom teaches you over time is when you go back, it's like, you know, it's, it's like I mentioned earlier, if you know your history, if you, if you understand your past, you can make a better future. That's it. And in those moments where you start to, that sting, you start to feel that complacency or that shame from making a past decision or over or, or passing up on a, on, a, on a great opportunity or messing up an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And when you when you, when you take your history and you break it down and you can and you start to see the patterns in your life, how you 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 make the same you 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 you're in a pattern when you start making the same steps over and over and once you realize it once you can recognize it you can break the pattern you can break the hold and then you can start moving in that direction that you want to and and it's and it's it's part of that those growing those growth opportunities that's the that's the purpose of pain is for you to grow from it's the Mm -hmm. pain it should make you stronger on some level it should help you remove some of that i don't want to use the term weakness but that's the only word i can think of but it help you remove that weakness from yourself and learn that there is a way and you just have to figure it out and you know it's like being a kid and you're learning how to walk you fall you get up you fall you get up you start to figure out your center of balance Mm-hmm. You start to figure out, okay, if I, if I, you know, step like this, if I keep stepping like this, I'm gonna keep falling. So I'm gonna start by picking myself up on this and holding myself up and learning how to balance first. And then I'm gonna start taking some steps. And so I think that's the key, you know, to breaking holding patterns, to breaking those repetitive, drawn out things that call you cause you consistent pain yeah yeah and I I think you know so I reflect a lot about 
um, I've had a lot of experiences with doctors in pain over the past few years as a cancer survivor. And one of the things I try to remind myself is that, you know, when you go to the doctor and they ask you where it hurts and they ask you to show them where it hurts and that doctor touches that spot, the doctor is not causing you the pain. The doctor is pushing the place where the pain already is. So if you want to get healed, it doesn't make sense for you or won't work for you to fight the fight the process, if that makes sense. If you want to get healed, you've got to let the doctor do his or her work, right? Or their work. You've got to let the doctor do the work. And so it's important to understand that that pain is there to teach you, is there to inform you, is there to show you, it gives you a clue like how to fix it, right? Pain is a gift. It's God designed us to have those pain sensors because they're like a gift to us. And it tells you like something is wrong. They're like warning signals, right? Like we've been we've been following uh, Pastor John Hanna in his, his sermon series, the, the road signs of life. Pain is a sign that something is wrong, right? It would be horrible if you went through life and could never feel pain. You would never know to take your hand off that hot stove. Pain is, pain is your clue that something is not working. And if you pay attention to it, it can help you figure out what you need to do next. Do I need to move? Do I need to keep going and just understand the pain is a part of the process? Is the pain more psychological than it is physical? All those questions are things that we consistently have to reflect upon. And I think sometimes, and I'll just be honest about my personal experience, sometimes I've been so full of shame and disappointment that I haven't let the pain teach me what it's designed to teach me. Right. So instead of the pain driving me in the direction of, you know, reflection and growth, it drives me in the, that place of self-loathing. And I get stuck in that cycle. Right. So I'm like, oh, pain, you're not going to beat me up worse than I can beat myself up. And I know that sounds crazy. But if you're honest with yourself, a lot of us do that. Right. Like pain, you can't teach me anything because I already feel bad. I already I already know I messed that up. And so instead of growing from it, you're just stuck in that holding pattern. And when you do that, you delay that growth moment. You delay the opportunity for whatever that pain is designed to teach you. And I and I and I think when I look back over my life, I realized how many moments I, I missed because I assumed that to have anything good that it wouldn't hurt. I misinterpreted the pain. And some of the best things you can ever have come with pain. I had four beautiful people. And they all hurt when they came here. That's a part of the process. And so I just wanted to share that in case anybody can benefit from that. Like sometimes the pain is unavoidable. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're lazy. Sometimes pain is a part of the process. I don't know what the caterpillar feels when they're becoming a butterfly. It might hurt. So just be encouraged. You know, the hardest part about pain sometimes, and this is my, my experience, is knowing when to ask for help. Because mm. sometimes we... 
we live in a cold well i'll backtrack and stand and stand and instead of saying sometimes we have a culture particularly as a man we we have a mindset i want to say i won't call it a culture i call it a mindset that you're supposed to do everything on your own and and when you feel that way when you go through pain you feel like you have to do it on your own but then you also add the complexity of trauma and shame that can also prevent you from asking for help if you had a moment in your life where you reached out for help and you and you caught the wrath of somebody or you got shamed for it you stop reaching for help and so you find yourself continuing to do the same thing over and over and over and over and expecting something different to happen yes because you think you're doing the right thing and you in your in your moral compass or your ethical compass is telling you you're doing the right thing. Morally and ethically, you might be, but strategically and tactically, maybe not. That's so good. And sometimes it takes somebody to say, hey, man, or hey, hey, lady, um, you know why this hurting, right? You know why you're in this situation, right? Or, or here's what I'm seeing. And when you add the extra layer of ego, which don't ever want to be wrong and which don't ever want to be responsible for creating the pain that also puts up that block and you find yourself in this pattern and you're beating yourself up against the wall and you're banging your head and you're wondering, why can I get out of this? pattern why can't i seem to make traction and so this is why we were not meant to be alone this is why we are social creatures is so we can help each other each one reach one and each one teaches one and you don't have to be a genius or a professor or a therapist to help somebody or to receive, or you don't, or you don't have to be downright crippled and broken to receive help. That's good. It's better to receive help when you're in a position to receive it, than have that help be forced on you where you don't, you don't have, you don't have an option. It's like, it's like you use the analogy about going to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Don't wait until you have to go. Go before you have to go. Seek help before you need help. Yes. It's better to get the help you want than to get the help you have to get. That's good. <laughs> and and so when you find yourself struggling, you have to read the best thing you can do is reach out for help. I don't know. And it's OK to say, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I've been doing the same thing over and over and I keep getting the same thing over and over because you keep doing what you're doing you're going to keep getting what you're getting and that's good and bad thing yes and so there's benefit in re- and that and feel pain when the pain sets in 
that's when you need to reach out. When you can't get out your head, that's when you need to reach out because you're that's stuck good. within. And you need to have something. Sometimes we have to have somebody pull us mm. from the darkness of ourselves. That's it. And I know a lot of people, you know, we have this counterculture that um that pushes against um religious teachers and 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 therapists and people who speak beyond the physical to reach a certain pinnacle but that's but but that's the tr- but that's where you're going to find your truest meaning and your truest support is when you can see it abstractly because the 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 logic tells you things should be some should be one way but that ain't how to, that's not necessarily how the spiritual world works and a lot of times the the hold up is spiritual um and and so you have to have somebody to help you pull yourself out of that dark spiritual place into a brighter place where you can see not just what you need to do, but you can most importantly see yourself because that's where everything starts. And if you if you're never shown yourself, you're never really given the true key to all to your solutions and your problems. Yes. And it is you that know it is you that is going to it is only you that's going to get you out of that. Muck you're in that holding pattern, that that trap that you fear you're in. And so um, that that's from my experience is is I may I have made I, I have I am by nature a solitary creature. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I started to reach outside of myself and embrace the world around me and get into the dance of the world around me and and people show me the world outside of myself and 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 question what I'm thinking question what I'm doing and get me to redirect my thought patterns to 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 release myself from that mental hold that I'm in that I was in And so I say all that to say, I say all that to say, don't try to do it by yourself. I know it sounds cool and it sounds like it'll feel good because I figured it out on my own because that's what we were taught as kids. Do it yourself. Don't just feel good. Do it yourself. And that's, that, that doesn't always apply. And when, and when we take those childlike, mindsets into adulthood we find ourselves in unnecessary holding patterns but when two or more people lift something together it's so much easier you only go as far as your team yes and you can get far alone you can probably get there pretty fast but if you want to go farther you got to pick a team you got to you got to get the right people around you. So. So, um, baby. I, I, can I divest from our, our tradition for a little bit? Um, I have a special friend. Who's watching. And um, this 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 show. So much more sometimes than just, you know, 
conversations with each other and we kind of like share the things that we're going through about our personal seasons and our personal growth. But I I know that this special friend can't be the only one who's watching, who's going through this and who's feeling um, stuck. And so I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray for those who are listening, who um, might be feeling stuck, who might be feeling, you know, you're in this, that cycle of self-loathing. And I know this, I know tonight's show is important because I've been having all kinds of technical issues on my side. So if you guys can see it on your side, I apologize, but I know exactly what that's about. This, when you have a message that is um, going to heal people, and people who um, are watching are in need of something, sometimes things show up to kind of derail that. And that's why you push through the pain, right? So if I wasn't willing to push through the pain of whatever my technology is or isn't doing over here, then I wouldn't be able to deliver the message that people need to, to hear. So would you like to pray, baby? Or would you like me to pray? I'll let you do it. I think you, I think it's on your heart. So I think it'll, I think it'll come from the right place. Okay. All right. Oh God, we just want to thank you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for every heart and every mind that is present. We thank you that those who are listening later will get exactly what they need to get, God, because we know there's no time and no space in the spirit. Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I just command a peace that surpasses all understanding. I command a healthiness of the heart, a healing of the soul. I command for everybody under the sound of my voice, to understand that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God, there is nothing you've called us to do that you haven't put inside of us the equipment to get it done. God, I want everybody under the sound of my voice to know that we are loved and we are loved and treasured by you. We are loved so well and there is nothing, no height, no depth, nothing that can separate us from that love. And so when people, when humans are unable to love us to the capacity of everything you've called us to be, have to know that those are not our people. They could be sent to teach us a lesson. They could be there because in a weakened state of understanding who we are, we chose beneath us. And it's not that any person is more or better than the other, but some of us have selected people who are not tied to our divine destiny, to our divine purpose, and to our highest calling. And so, Lord, we release those people tonight. We give it over to you. And we know that once we become the people you called us to be, those who are supposed to be for us will manifest in our lives because there's no other place they could be. There's no other journey they could be on. God, I just speak peace. Peace, be still in the name of Jesus. And God, love on us. Love on us. Show forth your power through your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, One of the things that I've also learned in 
moments of struggle, um, hardship, um, and and in times where we want or need more than what is currently being presented to us, is I've learned that giving the best way you giving the best way you can is sometimes the easiest way to free yourself it's the fastest way you free yourself it's the because a lot of times we get we get caught up in the desires of the heart and the wants of the mind and when you lose yourself in want you in a sense doom yourself for failure because that sense of want is an insatiable hunger Mm-hmm. you are going to always want yes but once you decide for yourself what you're willing to give what you not just what are you willing to give but what you want to give and you focus in on that because when you focus on giving you're not focused on anything else and you're giving the best of yourself when you're focused on giving the best of who you are and in turn you give those who are really for you the permission to do the same because the truth is yeah there are a lot of takers out here but that's where your discernment has to come in yes and if you are giving at a deficit that's the that's that pain I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, but I'm not getting anything back. So you either need to change what you're giving or change what you're giving to. And sometimes that's that's some of the hardest things to discern. But that's but again, that's where you have to seek higher counsel, whether yes. that whether you get direct connection to the most high or you see someone that's you know, that's been through what you're going through. But I've learned that the the way to the most, the the in my experience, the way to the most genuine result or exaltation or genuine when you get what you're really looking for, what you really, really want is when you're willing to really, really give to get it. Because if you are a, if you're a, if you're good at giving, you give yourself permission to receive because the right person who's in that same state of giving, it'll become an exchange. And when the receive bucket is full, the give bucket can give. And you can't, you can't, you can't pour water from an empty well. So you got to decide what you're willing to give for it. And that's not necessarily give up, but what are you willing to pour out for it? What are you willing to pour into something or into someone? for what you want, whether that's a goal, relationship, marriage, you know, 
because what you take care of takes care of you in the most genuine sense. And I'm not saying it's not situations where that that line of truth is either where there's where there's um, contradictions to that. Or that truth can be blurred some. I'm not saying that. But I am saying more times than not. If you're willing to listen to the pain. And adjust to what the pain is telling you. You'll get if you will eventually get out of that pattern, you, you will eventually break the hold of what's holding you. And usually will use that wisdom. From what had you held before. To decide where you want to go or to get where you want to go, let's put that because you, you might have already decided in that moment of pain where you want to go. But taking that pain and using that lesson to propel you to ultimately what you're seeking. So. And I would just add as as a as a woman and a mother and a wife. Sometimes we forget who we are. Sometimes we forget who we are. And I know the husbands and fathers as well, but I, I really believe that our society demands that women forget who they are so that they can be quote unquote good at being all those other things to other people, right? And so for me, the thing that was the scariest for me was spending time alone before meeting you, spending time alone to become my authentic self. And what I realized is I didn't even know who I was. I didn't even know who I was outside of being those kids' moms, you know, somebody's ex-wife. I didn't, I didn't know who I was. All those accolades, all the education, the years I spent as a teen, like that didn't mean anything because that's not really who Shakima is. Shakima shows up in all those ways, but to my core, that's not who I am. And I had to spend time becoming my authentic self and learning to love that authentic self. And as I spent more time focused on me for a change, like for the first time in my life, I was like, you know, what do you want? What do you desire? How do you want to feel? How do you want to be treated? When I spent time working on me, then I became a magnet for other people who desire to live authentically. My authenticity repels people who are not for me. Right. Whether that's in the workplace, in ministry, because everybody's not for you and they don't have to be. But when you're authentic, it's like a magnet. You attract other authentic people because they know that, like, at the end of the day, you're only going to be who God has called you to be. Right. And you're going to give other people the space. You're going to hold space for other people who are doing the same thing. And so I would say for anybody who's struggling to figure out, like, where you are in this journey, where you fit, you know, is it over for me? Am I too old? Am I too young? You're not. You're not. Because nine times out of 10, you haven't even figured out who you are. You could be in your 60s and still haven't spent time alone with you. Figure out who you are, figure out who you were called to be, figure out what your unique design is. And once you know that, you won't even tolerate anybody who can't affirm that or add to it. Just hang in there. Dunlap. What's up, baby? 
thank you for just being you. Thank you for allowing me to take this in a different direction than what we planned. But this is this is real ministry. This is the work of those who are called to serve and you know the warriors of light, those who are who are here. And we know our purpose is to walk, you know, um walk this journey with people who are hurting. And that's the reason why we've been hurt so much. Because if you don't know what it feels like, then you don't know how to walk and hold space with people who are hurting. Allowing me to take the show kind of in a different direction than what we originally planned. Um, I would say in the last few minutes, would you mind closing us out with some of the nuggets we gained from our uh, week last in leadership boot camp? Well, I'll, I'm going to say this and then I'll get into that. Okay. You know, it's part of that giving thing, right? Mm-hmm. You got to give. If you love somebody, you give that person space to be who they are. And even if it's, you know, even if it's parts that you haven't quite been introduced yet, because some, sometimes you have new relationships, you know, and, you know, sometimes, you know, we're all growing. And I, I really believe that to, to when you, when you, when you love someone, you remind them or you expose to them who they are in the most genuine sense you bring out the best in them and that's all i want to do is just allow you to be the best version of you that you can be so i when you want to make pivots and changes i know it comes from a, a good place and so i am willing to give you space to express what's on your heart so so that, that I just wanted to add that. And I, and I think when you give people the space to be who they are and you're not judging or making them feel ashamed of who they are, I think the true authentic the true authenticity shines through and the and the best of that person shines through. So and I think that's and I think that's those are real relationships. Um when real loving relationships, I'll say that. Um when you let that person be themselves and you don't hold judgment, but you hold space for them to do that. So, but getting into, you know, kind of some of the things that, you know, we, um, we picked up on last week from the leadership boot camp. It, it was pretty, it was really enlightening. Um, some of the nuggets from, you know, uh, Dr. Daniels, is, he's a, he's a, he's like a, a uh, a poet or a rapper because he always has punchlines. He always has. <laughs> he always got the quotables, man. And you know, one of the things he talked about with leadership is um, going broader, not necessarily higher. Reaching a broader spectrum of people um, instead of you know just trying to climb up as a leader. It's, it's about because you know one of the things that. He touched on that was really that was you know really refreshing and uh, really good to hear again. It's about leadership being about influence, um, and so spread your influence if you want to if you want to have an impact, go broader instead of higher because the That's higher good. you go, the less you can see. Ooh. It's it's you can see a whole lot. You can see much more from a ten thousand foot view than a thirty thousand foot view. Um. Um, another one, he, you know, another one 
he um, touched on was about confidence. And it, it kind of plays into the, the, the concept of today's show and the holding patterns and how confidence can be seasonal. And That's how when you're, when, you, when you're in a transition period, before the transition period, you, you're confident, you know what's going on, you know what you're doing, and then things change. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it's something I'm experiencing myself in my professional world where my, my entire paradigm has been shaken up. And so it, it, is, it has shocked my confidence. But I'm, but I've been through enough to understand that it's just a, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of patience mm-hmm. and you know, new beginning. Like you said, new beginnings require new confidence. And yes. I am slowly but surely building up my confidence because I'm confident in, in, in my ability to adapt to whatever comes and, and, and I'm re-energized to learn and develop skills and continue to develop skills in a different direction than the skills I was developing before, because that's what's required of me. Um, and it's and confidence is something that has to be cultivated. It's not a natural thing. You confidence is built like like a like a Lego castle. It can be broken like a Lego castle. So your confidence is something that has to be built. Um, you know, he, you know, we we kind of touched on it earlier with seeking help. And, you know, and he mentioned that in the form of getting a community, getting a a, a community around you can support you and, and i know we talk about getting with like-minded people but sometimes that's not the key to growth sometimes the key to growth is having some is having a group, group having people around you that can challenge your beliefs and help you think beyond the limitations of what you're currently seeing or what you're con- currently thinking about and getting you to look at things from a different angle and i think that is the i think that's one of the most important skills that a leader can have is to be able to shift perspective or see or even see a different perspective um, because being a bull in the china shop is a bull in the china shop. You're gonna destroy everything. Mm-hmm. When you can, when sometimes you need a a gentle touch, you need a you need more technique than destruction. You know? yeah. Um you talked about uh being clear in your message, you know, being, you know, knowing what you're talking about, you know, knowing your stuff. Um, knowing what you're teaching, you know, are you informing people? Are you motivating people? Are you growing people? Are you coaching people? You know, know what you're doing, you know, know, know what your message is, know what your product is to the world. Um, and uh, let me, I'm, I'm going through my that notes. stuff was so good though. And I, and got, I got, I have so many notes. We um, probably have to do, uh, a whole show just to, like that stuff was so good and and one of the things i want to say about that was that's the power of mentorship you know like when you are when you have a strong mentor somebody whose life is dedicated to mentoring and empowering other people they're going to be transparent with you they're going to share with you the, the struggles that they that they're currently going through as well as those that they learn that they learn from but also you go so much farther faster because all of the things that it took them through, you know, maybe it took get something out. They're going to give it to you in five minutes. And so if you don't have people in your life who are like that, I don't care if you just find them on social media. Like you've got to have somebody that you can get some mentorship from. And the best mentorships are the people that you can be authentic with and like, you know, communicate with them and share where you're hurting. But I know a lot of people don't, you don't have a circle like that. When I first started off on this journey of I didn't have a circle like that. And so if you don't have those people in your circle, seek out people who are, like I said, 
social media. Like Dr. Darius Daniels is on YouTube, every social media platform, and he is a leadership coach. Yes, he's a pastor, right? Yes, he's an apostle, but well, I think he has an apostolic anointing. You know, I won't say as far as he's an apostle, but he definitely has an apostolic anointing. Um, but so find those kinds of people. That leadership boot camp that we went to was free. We didn't have to pay anything, but we we did have to give of ourselves, right? And then you're willing you, to give to get it. That's it. And when you are blessed by somebody, you reward them. So we, you know, we sow seeds because we were we were blessed by that. Somebody gave you 15 years of wisdom. It took them blood, sweat, and tears to get, and they gave it to you in five minutes. And you got it from the comfort of your own home. Yeah. So you you the workman is is you give them what they're worth. Absolutely. You know, and it was just it was a and I'm and I'm sure that content is probably available out there from those uh, those boot camps. Um, he dropped so many jewels in there. And in the most important one, one of the most important jewels that um, that I took from it, you know, especially in this time of transition um, is it's not a, about me, mm. especially with, you know, all of the um the things that are happening to a lot of my own team members that I support in my fellow, um, my, my fellow leaders in, in my company. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's not about me. It's about, you know, those around me and, and, and offering the support. And, and that's one of the things that reminded me about my brand of leadership is to put myself you know, not make it about me, but have my frame, my my um goggles of empathy on and understand what somebody else might be going through. That's I don't good. take responsibility for it. No, I don't. Um, and when I don't take responsibility for it, people can come as they are. It's when you take responsibility for things when people when and then when others bring their anger and their frustration and their blame, you take it personally. Mm -hmm. But it's when you now if I'm now that doesn't mean don't take responsibility when you are responsible for it. Yeah, yeah. But I don't it. take responsibility for others' decisions. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't take responsibility for that. And because you know, some of the changes that have come have been for from other people's decisions for the needs of the business i don't take responsibility for that but i am here to support those who are negatively impacted by it and so when they bring their concerns to me how they feel their frustrations their doubts their fears i don't take that personal because i'm i'm I am, I take responsibility as a leader to offer support, but I don't take res responsibility for that decision. So when they're angry, when they, when they release their anger and they express their frustrations, I could be there to support them right. because I'm not taking what they're saying to be personal. That's good. And, and as a leader, that's the way you, that, and, 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 in my brand of leadership, that's the way you stand firm as a leader is to understand that you have to walk a fine line between supporting where the, the, the initiatives of the organization. That's why they made you a leader, because you can be trusted to keep the organization going and by and, and balancing that with my responsibility to the people that rely on me and that I support. And so I give of myself and that's how I get out of my own pit of despair is I give to them and I make sure that I'm available for them. 
and to, you know, and that's what, like I said, to my, you know, the team members I support and, or those, who, you know, are my, my, the people at my same professional level and my at leadership level, I'll say that um, I'm there for them as well. And, you know, and, and again, I, you know, I'm not walking around saying it ain't my fault, but I'm not taking responsibility. And I think there's a clear difference yeah. between saying something's not my fault versus not accepting responsibility because not accepting responsibility i can still be there and be present but the moment i say it ain't my fault i i i've absolved my i've tried to absolve myself from the situation that's it yeah because being a leader is ultimately about having the capacity and influence to, to make somebody's life better right like that's what leadership is all about it's not about the power it's not about the title it's about you're having increased capacity to improve the lives of others. And that's all leaders are here for. And so I understand what you're saying, because once you realize that, then you don't take it to heart when you do have to, you know, share a decision with them that you know, they're going to be hurt. There's no need to pretend like people are not going to be hurt. Certain decisions are going to destroy them. You know that, like at least in the, in the initial response. And so you, you allow your people to share with you whatever they need to share with you and you just coach them through. You don't take it personally. You just coach them through because you know that as human beings who have other people that they lead, you know, they have other people they're responsible for. They're going to have a certain response to things that you share with them. And so I, I, you're, you're my favorite leader. I always like leadership. I'm like, what will do? And I just honor you for being the leader that you are for this family you know, for leading me, for leading the children and for watching you lead, you know, your team. You're amazing. And I'm the president of your fan club. I'm I, I do I, but I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know? All right. Well, close us out. Close us out. Done that. Well, with that being said, I hope y'all enjoyed tonight or you know, it was a pretty, uh, a heavier conversation tonight, but no, nonetheless, we hope that you all gained something from it. You grew from it. We hope we watered your garden a little bit and yes. help you see life in a different lens, help you maybe help you get unstuck, maybe help you break a holding pattern or inspire you to help to, to bring somebody along that can help you break out of the cage that you put yourself in your own mind and in your own spirit. And so um, it's been great to, to, to give this time to y'all and to give these jewels and nuggets and this, this information from, you know, our own personal experiences to help to hopefully help enrich someone else, someone else's life. And sometimes that's the greatest gift you can give is to help somebody learn, help somebody cut off the learning curve and, you know, get there faster. And a lot of times we take the pain for road and that road is long. But um, if you have somebody that can help you, um, you know, shorten that learning curve, it's always better. But thank y'all for joining. We came back to you like we promised. Like we promised. And we're going to be back again next week. Same time, same channel, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can find us on Facebook Live on two, every Tuesday night at the time I just announced. And you can also find us after we upload, after we process it and upload it on Spotify, YouTube, um, whatever you, whatever your stream, whatever you do your streaming, your podcast, you can find us there. And with that being said, I am your co-host, Deontay. And I'm Shakima. And we are the Dunlaps. 
We are the Dumb Labs. Thank y'all for coming out. Thank y'all for joining us. Peace out. Peace out.